0: Download one of my ebooks for free at jfpen.com forward slash free. Hello travelers, I'm Joe Francis Penn and I have a really interesting interview for you today. So travel can be about place. But it can also be about time. And in this interview, I talked to Alison Morton about how she has incorporated the ancient Roman Empire into her alternate history books featuring Roma Nova, which is kind of in the modern day. So my novels are also inspired by place and some places that have disappeared. In fact, uh, I'm writing Map of the Impossible at the moment, which is the third in my Map Walker series. And I've been uh, researching the ancient Egyptian funerary complexes. And so I understand the thrill of research about these ancient cultures that we can turn into story. But I'm kind of in awe at the way that Alison took an idea that Rome didn't fall, that it came through to the present day and wrote that into the present with all of the features of modern history and the ramifications of what that might mean in modern society. And she weaves in her own military experience. And we talk about the sense of how human emotion imbues itself into a landscape. So places where almost the concentration of history make a richness that you don't find in newer places. Um, Like here where I live in Bath, people came here to the Roman baths, which you can still visit. They came here 2000 years ago, throwing cursed tablets into the waters. And then, you know, a 1000 years later, worshipped at the medieval abbey, right alongside and these places of historical importance resonate through the years. And of course, Bath is a vibrant modern city, but it's based on these uh, ancient heritages. And also, we talk about how perhaps we are not so different to the ancient Romans after all. And uh, Alison recommends some books about the Roman Empire, but also gives us some uh, alternate history fiction novels that she recommends as well. So I hope you enjoy the interview. Alison Morton is the author of the Roma Nova series, Roman-themed alternate history thrillers with tough heroines. Welcome to the show, Alison. Thanks very much, Joanna. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Oh, no, it's great to talk to you about this because I know you're such an expert on it. So let's start <laughs> with what drives your fascination with ancient Rome?
1: Well, how long have you got? No, I won't. Um, it's a lifelong a fascination, if you like. It started when I was 11. And I don't know whether they still do it now, but after each holiday, you had to go first thing back at school in September. You had to do my holiday project. And so, although then photography wasn't sort of up to it, you had to do drawing. So I was drawing this mosaic, And there's this huge Um, Greco-Roman port, Ampurias, which is northeast Spain. So I was traveling, you see. (laughs) And I was drawing all the pretty patterns of the mosaics and all that. And I asked my father, I said, well, who are the the people that lived here? You know, we touched on Romans at school, but touched. And he started, he's a real Roman, he was a real Roman nut. And he told me all about the, the sailors and the senators and the slaves and the colonizers and all the rest. And I sort of said to him, well, what did the mummies do? You know, my mother was the head of geography department, you know, women worked. And he said, oh, well, they stayed at home, looked after the children. So I went on drawing and I turned around to him and said, well, what would it have been like if the mummies and the ladies had, had run Rome instead of the men? <laughs> yeah, there's a good one. And he sort of looked at me, now he's clever. And he said, well, what do you think it would have been like? And
0: that sort of went into the back of my
1: brain at eleven.
0: Wow! So wait, so when, at what age did you write the first of the Roman? Oh Roman well, books? many, many decades later. <laughs> <laughs> I so, mean, so I guess in the meantime, you know, so did you pursue that as you oh, as you went through school and later?
1: Seriously, um,
0: I mean, we,
1: I, I've clambered over most of Roman Europe. I mean, I, I came. Okay, yeah, we know they had a slave society like all the ancient societies. They Um, were arch colonizers, they were exploiters, they were superstitious, but I'm going to end up like Monty Python now. They gave us systems and organizations and roads and admin, and you can't but admire somebody that's that organized, that cultural, that literary, that technological. And the more I found out about them as I sort of went through the decades and started reading sources, you know, Pliny and Tacitus and all that, I came to admire them even more. <laughs> and I just, yes, you have to take on the fact that um, they would not have been entirely pleasant to have lived under unless you were a white, uh well, not, not so much white because they were very multi-ethnic, unless you were a male of a senior family and then you were probably okay. But because of their complexity, I was totally fascinated. You didn't get that. Again, until the Victorian periods, you didn't get literacy and, and prosperity at the same level or a city with a million people until the Victorians. I mean, how can you not be fascinated?
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, and I think, you know, I did, I certainly did uh, Latin GCSE and then I did classical civilization at A-level. So, um, and like you've traveled a lot. um, But what is interesting is, you know, we do, I guess we know quite a lot about ancient Rome. I mean, there is a lot of evidence everywhere, but how do you use... That what we know of ancient Rome to write modern alternate history, which is what you're writing. Yeah, what, what, I guess what are some of the places or situations that you have inspired you? Well, the thing, I mean, we
1: you say we know a lot of stuff, but we know patchy bits. We know intensively about some things, and then there's great big gaps. And of course, it's only coming from a certain number of people. But we do know a, enough, and the Romans left loads of stuff behind, so we can get an insight into their minds to a certain extent. And I think the key is to look at their values, their attitudes, their motivations and what landscapes they saw. And whether they were military or colonisers, inhabitants. And the thing is to use those sorts of things and the things that we know, um, Things, ideas like the Praetorian Guard. Everybody's got a vague idea in their head because they've watched too many films or too much I Claudius. Things like the importance of tribes and families, um, their idea of you know personal unions, marriages for family reasons or property, their robust attitude, all that, and their service to the state idea, of course, and their corruption and blah blah blah. But. In Roma Nova, we still have forums. We have—we don't have Roman baths as such. We have gyms with spas, which is what everybody sort of generally expects in most towns. Um, they still have the idea of cursed tablets. They have public buildings. They have um, houses, have an atrium and a tablinum vestibule. And that's where my characters live. So you bring these elements forward, but then you have... Modern ideas, uh, say a law enforcement person is going to be dressed in blue and have a car with a flashing street light. Even though he'll in Romanova, obviously he'll be speaking in Latin, <laughs> which <laughs> sounds weird. They, their currency is solidy as it was in the fourth century when Romanova started, but they'll have internet banking, electronic transfer, and cards there'll be international shops but there'll also be local shops selling stuff like samian which is an ancient form of very high status pottery but it'll be made in a modern way so you have you mix and you've got to have anchors that people understand like bars and restaurants and stuff um, but also bring in that roman flavour but particularly in the mental attitudes they're tough if they get threatened they respond as Romans did. They have this same kind of technological and the engineering skill that their ancestors had. So they're right at the forefront of the digital revolution. All those kinds of characteristics I've brought forward into Roman over, yet with a modern touch. (laughs) So it's Mm. good fun.
0: (laughs) <laughs> yeah, absolutely, and and in fact, you mentioning restaurants there. Uh, we went to Herculaneum uh-huh. uh, a couple of years ago now, and I was really struck um, by the sort of area where they have all the restaurants, and mm. um, you know where people would have gone after work to have a drink, to get some street food, you know, yeah. to uh, hang out, and that it was so modern. As you say, that's what we do now. Mm. It's what people do all over the world. So, I mean, Herculaneum is is obviously a, a, a buried city um what are the some of the specific places that you've traveled to that have inspired your story arcs well there's two or
1: three things i sort of was thinking about that um i mean i suppose unless you've sat in an arena somewhere like neem um you don't appreciate how big a crowd will be so that those kinds of things and one thing particularly inspired me was um, there's a little tiny place, southern France, called Ambrussum, which was a very important crossing point. And it's where the Via Domitia split. One bit went to Spain, one bit went to Italy, and the third bit went north up through Gaul. And you stand there, and unlike in Britain, when I say Roman road, it is almost complete. It's everything, the whole thing's there, including wheel ruts. And they use these roads for centuries afterwards. But if you just stand there and think and breathe, people who travelled that road two thousand years ago saw the same view across the valley. Okay, they didn't see the A six or the TGV. Okay, <laughs> admittedly, but that's what they saw. And the other thing, I went to Carlean, We're back in the UK, and I went to. I was going to a conference, and I went a day early, and. I just sort of stood there, and in the ruins of the barracks, there was a, huge, it was a huge barracks which looked after all the a lot of the West Wales and so on. And do you think those soldiers there would have seen the same sky, and again the same landscape? And you just stand there and close your eyes, and you can almost not quite feel people because that would be a bit spooky, but you can appreciate what they're seeing and perhaps what they might feeling when there's a cold wind and a bit of drizzle <laughs> falling on you. So those kinds, of, I'm inspired by Roman concrete, to be honest. I'm I'm the saddo that feels stuff and starts looking at how many, much gravel there is in the concrete. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, because you know, as you've said, part of what made an empire was systems and engineering, mm, and you know, mm. it's not it, it, the culture and the thought might be one thing, but that's not what you know conquers mm. worlds. But it's interesting. So you mentioned their name. You mentioned Southern France. You've mentioned mm. Wales. I think you know when many if people listening uh, say are in in the US, like many people when they think when you've you've said Romanova, and so people think Colosseum, they mm. think. Rome, they think Italy. Mm. So just give us a sense, like how wide was oh, the empire? It's sort huge. of, the, yeah, the biggest point.
1: Well, you went, go from Portugal, if you like, um, that was a bit of the wilds, not quite as wild as Britannia, mind you. And it goes into Turkey, Syria, Egypt, most of North of Africa, um, you know, where Morocco, Tunisia, and Coming back into Europe, they did actually have quite a line of forts into Germania. In the end, they had to come back to the Rhine and the Danube, but they did go forward that far. There was no other place in the ancient world. I mean, Rome did rule the ancient world, the whole thing, west and east. Um, So... It's a very difficult concept. I suppose the next nearest thing would be one of the 19th century empires, you know, France or Britain. Just how massive it was and how important it was. You really were a barbarian if you were outside.
0: Mm. And of course, one of the other places, um, uh, modern day Israel as such, and uh, Roman... Yeah, Roman religion before Constantine's conversion <laughs> um, to Christianity. It was quite different. You've mentioned cursed tablets and, of course, I live in Bath in the UK <laughs> where we have the Roman Bath yes. and we have cursed tablets just down the road from where I am standing right now. So um, any places that particularly have sparked the religious or faith aspect of the books? Well, it's, it's a very funny
1: thing because, um, if you like, the Roman – as you say, Roman traditional religion, we think of all the gods, Jupiter and Minerva and all the rest of them and Juno. And they're found all over the Roman Empire. In fact, the emperors became gods in a way. But Christianity came in and it, although we know a lot about or we understand a lot about the Romans persecuting early Christians, it turned the other way by the end of the 4th century. It was a capital offence to be anything else but a Christian So my Romanovans, because of that, because they were true to the traditional gods, trekked north and founded their own little part of the Roman colony up in the mountains. So the Romanovans' faith came from traditional Roman um, thoughts and observance. But of course, in the 20th and 21st century, it's a bit like anybody else with a, a religion that's established some believe, some are indifferent, some are just plain cynical. Um, So I think a lot of people will connect with those different points of view. But they see the festivals um, as a framework to their life. They're important. It's like we all think Christmas and Easter and the rest of it. They would see things like Saturnalia as very important and all the other various festivals. So they observe that as a framework to their values and social ideas, if you like. But it's very useful <laughs> because, two things, you can tack on something like the wildness of Floralia, which got did get a bit wild because all the spirits and a lot of booze on the street. And I put a young daughter of one of the heroines in danger, and it's great because you've got that backdrop. So you bring in the, the thriller and the danger side, Plus also you're bringing in the Roman side and another character is exiled, which is, as you probably know, you've done Latin studies. That is a fate almost worse than death to be exiled from Rome. Um, And she's missing Saturnalia, which she's spent every single year with her family. So you can bring all that in. How much anybody believes is up to the personal character, I think, the other fantastic thing about having lots and lots of Roman gods, they can swear by them, and I don't sort of run foul of any current religious names that may offend readers. <laughs> 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 we can swear by Jupiter and <laughs> sort of <laughs> Mars balls and all that without having to sort of get into anything blasphemous.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. In fact, I was just trying to think of some of the uh, Roman sort of religious ancient Roman religious sites mm. that uh, still are inspirational. Ah. Um, I, I none, none are springing to mind. I mean, ah, 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 what about Nîmes, the Maison Carrée
1: down in Nîmes? That I is haven't amazing, been there. Tell us a bit oh, more about that. You must go. It is intact. It is absolutely intact. And it's magnificent. You are like a little ant on the steps leading up to the temple. And I think if you go to Nîmes, I mean, it's the famous one. It's in all the pictures. But go in and just have a little quiet moment, if you can find a quiet moment, and you realise just how much, how much effort and how much symbolism it had. Um, the other thing is, there's a. Um, everybody's heard of the Pont du Gard, but there are springs and rivers, and they're very important to Romans, especially Gallo-Romans, because the local people were very um, aware of the um, rhythms of nature. So those two things are particularly, but the neem does give you a sense, a spiritual sense, I would say.
0: Mm. And yeah, of course, again, in Bath, it's the spring, the natural spring mm. that um, became the centre of the Baths and and a yes. lot of people, you know, worshipping mm. uh, Minerva here, but uh, originally at Quaisoulis and other things. So it, it is. I, I find that side really interesting, uh, you know, in terms of mm. certainly here it, and the places that were holy. Again, it's like you say, looking back into the past and into the future, we've got in Bath, the Roman Baths next to Bath Abbey, which is, you know, Of medieval origin, so people still worship like in the same places.
1: (laughs) I think so. Yes, I mean a lot of the Christian churches were built over pagan sites. Very much so. Very much so. Um, I I will say something. When I was last in Bath, um, I you know looked at the baths and all the rest of it, and then there's a big pool, um, like a frigidarium. And I must admit, I did feel impelled to throw an offering in. I did throw money into it and Uh sat, stood there and just had a little think. I don't think it was as heavy as a prayer, but it definitely has an effect on you. You feel a connection.
0: I think so. And I I have this, this, I've talked about this on this podcast before, the feeling that when... Uh, a lot of human emotion becomes imbued in the same Mm. place it does leave some kind of uh, impression on the landscape and I don't mean ghosts I mean just some kind of emotional resonance so in Herculaneum I found that incredibly moving because Mm. you know those people died so fast Um, and so you know just so many of them (laughs) You know, when they were covered in lava. (laughs) Yeah, and so it wasn't It was.
1: always quick, but it was, there they were. You knew you were dying. You knew you would not survive. And what on earth went through those people's heads? They must have prayed to, you know, the gods to protect them.
0: Do we pray to Vulcan? Anybody,
1: basically. (laughs) And they didn't come through. Yeah, it's crazy. But it was seen perhaps as retribution. I mean... We have completely different ideas. A volcano goes up. We just think, "Oh dear, we must go and rescue people." And it was really sad those people on the island in um, New Zealand a few weeks ago. in New Zealand didn't get off the island, you know. And we feel as fellow human beings, but I don't think we think that was God's revenge.
0: Well, it's interesting though because um, the original, you know, the land and the the Maori uh, sort of heritage side. Right. There are some. Uh, spiritual sides to the volcano. Mm. But again, it brings it back to how you can write alternate history is there's not that much separating us from ancient Rome, right? Uh, No,
1: people are still people. And I mean, I do try and stick as much, you know, although alternate history, if you want to go completely bonkers, you could write silly stuff. But I try to stick to the historical and make it Plausible, if you like. Um, And people don't change. People are just as scared. I mean, a bit more modern attitude, if you like, but they still worry about the same things and they fear the same things.
0: Yeah, which which is why I guess we still write the same stories at the end of the day. Mm, but yeah. just um, coming back to, uh, so you've mentioned the military, and of course, you have experience with the <laughs> armed forces. So tell us a bit more about that. And also a bit more about, I guess, women in the armed forces and how <laughs> how this has shaped your books and your travels. Right. Well,
1: I mean, I've always been fascinated by the role of women in the armed forces. I did my master's dissertation on that. So, was, you know, I sort of really got heavily into it. I mean, I served in a mixed unit, um, let's just say in a special communications role. And that was fun. Um, And gender didn't really count. I mean, obviously, there's physical differences between us. um, But really, you were there to carry out the task you were there to carry out. I mean, I've crawled over many training grounds and taken part in NATO exercises. In fact, I met my husband when I was on exercise in Cyprus. (laughs) 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 So... I mean, Rome was a very military society and Romanovans in my books have have always had to use every single resource to survive through the centuries. So their young women, as well as their young men, had to take up arms to defend their their rather small country. I mean, I can bring the direct military experience into the books. I mean, not just the technical side, um, but the Things like the camaraderie and the hard training, the dependence on each other. You really do have to depend on each other. Um, things like structures and permissions and little ways of doing things. There's no research necessary there. Um, and as as we know, it's the small details that make things plausible and credible and and resonate with people. So, mm. yeah, I mean, I've shivered on the North German plain very near the East German border.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's interesting, you mentioned Cyprus there. I feel yeah. like Cyprus is one of those places people don't uh, quite understand how complicated that is geographically. Oh, Can you, you just explain kidding. about Cyprus?
1: Well, ooh, I mean, it's a very ancient civilization, but I think it's uh, 70s, wasn't it? I mean, they were always, always having political crises there. The UK has two, three sovereign bases there, which um, are, if you like, not quite a bit of Britain, but as if they were. And uh, But between the Greek community and the Turkish community, things got to such a state that Turkey invaded in, and took over the northern part. And it's been a pariah state ever since. I mean... If you go to Nicosia, you can still, it was very sudden. If you go to Nicosia, which was divided, you still see 1970s cars in the old showrooms, you know, covered in <laughs> dust. And there was an aeroplane, a British European airways plane, I think, yeah, got caught and sat on the runway for years and years and years. I think they've taken it away now. But as a sudden, you know, Cyprus, as the proper Cyprus, if you like, uh, or the one that's accepted, is a member of the EU. And northern Cyprus is still very much part of the Turkish influence. And a lot of countries still don't have diplomatic uh, relations with it. And they said they won't until the Turkish troops leave. So it's it's very awkward.
0: It is, and it's a, it's fascinating because it's such a tiny place, and it yeah. <laughs> it brings up with with like what you're saying about um, well, if we think about the Roman Empire kind of moving into these other areas and the the borders and the struggles that that happened pretty much all the time, right? They were either pushing out to new places or mm. being attacked. Mm. It, it right. seems I mean, it. It seems to me that Cyprus would be one of the places in the world where you a very small place where you can go and you've got these different cultures still, you know, divided over a, a very small border. Mm.
1: I mean, the Romans just went in and sorted it out. I mean, Britain was made up of tribes who often fought each other, and so you've got lo- the local thing and different uh, cultures although they may have all been from celtic backgrounds they used to beat each other up and pinch horses and you know generally raid each other the romans just walked in and said either you you know you accept roman rule and behave yourselves or we will come and punish you so they were much more of an over stretching organisation if you like uh, that didn't stand any any truck with Rebels at all. Mm. Quite what they would have done in, well, I know what they would have done in Cyprus. (laughs) (laughs) Dead easy.
0: (laughs) Yes, just sort it out. Yeah, no, exactly. Which Which is quite interesting. I mean, you could say, yeah, I guess we don't have uh, the uh, American sort of shock and awe tactics might have been (laughs) on on a par. (laughs)
1: Well, they're all too, yeah, they they don't like doing that in case they get involved and there are body bags. Um, Rome wasn't quite so squeamish.
0: Yes, they didn't have social media, so uh, no. things, things are quite different now. But I wanted to ask, so you, you speak several languages and you live in France. I uh, so I wondered, like, when you travel, what difference does language make to your understanding of places?
1: Oh, much, a great deal, a great deal. Um, because when you study a language, you study the systems, the literature, the politics, stuff that go, it goes on uh films, music, whatever. And language particularly is a is a a window into the culture. And when I um France has never been a strange place to me. I started learning French at the age seven, um, as a kid. And I can go through France without a map. I can't do that in England. with uh, well the middle bit of, it, of the UK is all a bit of a mystery to me. Um I didn't have to use the GPS or a map. <laughs> um But it enables, I see it a lot when new people come over here to France and they haven't got a clue how to deal with the French administration, which operates still on Napoleonic lines. And you sort of say, yeah, well, you have to do this, 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 and this. Well, do you need all that? I say, yeah, you go to an interview with a civil servant about your residence permit or whatever. You take everything and then you take some more. And, oh I said they'll only ask for a tenth of it but you've just got to show that you've made an effort now in England it's completely different <laughs> So, but if you're not if you don't get the language and the mentality we're back into people's heads again if you don't get the language and the mentality you lose out so much you don't understand why things happen I mean cultural diversity is one of my favorite topics really and if you if you can understand how things work in say in France, it's very centralist and it's very down. It comes down from the top, and everything goes back to the revolution, all systems and organisation. If you can understand that, you're halfway there, and you will make better friendships. You will get on better. You will know more. Ditto with Germany. It's a completely different way of going. Um, Germany's got a federal mindset and a federal way of doing things, and the whole language reflects how people think. So, um, yeah, I mean, when I'm speaking French, I know my, my friends and my husband say you change personality
0: mm. in, in
1: what way? Well, I start using different gestures, um, I use different tones in my voice, it's much more. Polarized. I use more down and more up tones and I can hear myself because you're not translating. You're just saying something in a different language. Um, It's a difference between translating each word, trying to work out what stuff is um, and just expressing a thought or asking for something or taking part in a discussion. And I mean, I'm not conscious of it, but I've been told about it and I start looking for it now. (laughs)
0: But does that shape how you write um, with Latin? Because, of course, Latin is technically a dead language. Mm. Uh, I mean, there's aspects of Latin in lots of other languages. Mm. But um, do you take that kind of understanding um, of the culture? Or how how does using Latin make a difference? Well, Latin is succinct and direct. Yes, it can be very subtle.
1: I mean, it depends which sort of Latin you're looking at, if you like. Um, It did shape because of the how can you say not the hardness of latin but the positive there's nothing hidden every letter and every syllable and every consonant is pronounced there's nothing hidden there and so that does give you a directness and a succinctness i mean i don't think i consciously used it um i tend to write in a very that kind of style anyway So, you know, you're making me think, Joanna, you're making me think here. (laughs) Um, This is not good. Not in the afternoon. Um, So I think the whole directness helps. That's probably the one thing I can put my finger on.
0: Yeah. And it's it's interesting because I feel like... um... Mary Beard has sort of brought in a Renaissance in interest mm. in, in Rome and Roman history and also women. And, um, I, I like watching her when she kind of translates slang and swear <laughs> words and kind of, you know, and that's a, again another sense of they were the same as us. Mm. Um, so that, do you incorporate that kind of, um, cause, you know, I did, the exams in Latin, hmm. and you don't use any of that language. Oh you know? no, so no, 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 So, <laughs> do you think about that in a kind of much broader way?
1: You have to. I mean, I don't know whether in your Latin studies you came across the poet Catullus.
0: Yes, we, I think we got read some rude stuff at one oh, point. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we did the
1: the lyrical stuff and the sparrow and all that stuff. But when then our Latin teachers, oh, well, we won't go on to the next bit because that's unsuitable for you girls. Well, of course, what did we do?
0: <laughs> <laughs> that was probably extra homework. They were like, we oh, know how yeah. to make you translate this. <laughs> <laughs> we all sat around the sit form block dictionaries. What
1: the heck? Oh, my God. Is that possible? You know, and I think it was part of us. Let's call it a sentimental in education. So, yes, again, here we are in direct and be incredibly rude. I mean. Because I write a lot of military people and they're Romans, they, will, they won't say drat when they drop something or something happens. Hence, we're back to using the, God, the Roman gods' names because if I wrote it in English, it would be unprintable. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, and you, you bring that in, if you like. Um, I mean, they could be incredibly lyrical and incredibly obscene. So you have to reflect that um, all the way through. And usually when I start drafting, I will have read a bit of, uh, probably in translation, I have to admit now, some stuff just to get me into the zone, into the mindset.
0: No, mm. oh, fantastic. <laughs> so um, just, yeah, so I am going to ask about some other books, but just tell us about uh, which, you know, if people were going to start with Romanova, mm-hmm. do they start with book one? Tell us about that or or anything else you want to mention?
1: Yeah, okay. Um. <sighs> Uh, what i've done now as the series has developed is split it into two strands if you like so you've got two main heroines karina and aurelia um karina was brought up in new york which is great because she is the outsider um that comes in her mother was romanov and as descent goes through the female line she's obviously a romanov um and then the re- that was the first one I thought of. So the reader finds out about Romanova as Karina does. So that that's quite useful. So that's a good starting point. So then there's a novella and two other full-length books which take which are like snapshots into her life um, for the next 16-17 mm, years. And then the other strand, Aurelia, starts in the late 60s and goes through to the early 80s. And Aurelia is in fact Karina's grandmother. But I've written these stories of her younger life. And she's she's a Roman ovum, what they call a blood and bone Roman ovum, born there. And she does different stuff and she has a different outlook. So we've got two separate strands, but I wrote each book as a standalone anyway. So I hate cliffhangers. I really hate cliffhangers. <laughs> no, me,
0: me too. <laughs> so
1: I never write cliffhangers because it's horrible. But obviously, if you read, you know, either each of the four or all eight, they connect. And then right. I've done some a book short stories, which are smaller stories, but enhance, if you like, but little things I wanted to write.
0: Mm. Mm, about so, the culture. And yeah. um, and apart from your books, uh, what uh, books would you recommend about ancient Rome or even modern books that also resonate with your alternate history?
1: Well, uh, you mentioned Mary Beard. And of course, the, her recent one, I mean, her Pompeii was great. Um, I'd read that before I went to Pompeii, which was really useful. Um, but her SPQR is the one, has been her bestseller, I think now. That was really, really good because she gets into normal life she talks about bakers and slaves and traders and the the, the people rather than the emperors and the generals. And she, she gives you an awful lot of information, but it's never, ever indigestible. And she points out what well, we know about this, so we can surmise that. We don't know much about this, but this would indicate that X, Y, Z, plus she uses what we actually do know. And, of course, the thing about Rome is people keep digging stuff up. <laughs> yeah, It was one of the most prolific organ- uh, civilizations for stuff. <laughs> so there's always developments going on. So, yeah, she's brought it in. There's, I mean, whenever she comes on the television, all, all us fangirls just fall on her and have to watch it or read it, whichever. So that's that. One of the things that... I mean, alternate history is a very strange genre. I mean, I do blog incessantly about it because it's not secret history or fantasy. It's where time divided. And once it's divided and gone off on a different line, you can't go back. There's no Doctor Who effect. <laughs> you know, there's <laughs> no time travel or jumping back or waking up and it's all a dream. So um, I, I would... The thing that really got inspired, got me going and working out that actually that's what I was writing was Robert Harris's fatherland.
0: Oh, yes. Yeah. Now,
1: alternate history is not all about Nazis. There are lots of... You'd
0: think it was. (laughs) Yeah, you'd think it was.
1: Like, yeah, but even like Livy even started an alternate history. Think, wondering about whether Alexander had turned West and met the Romans, who would have won, you know. Um, so it's been going on forever. Uh, yes, one thing I blog about incessantly about, it's not just <laughs> not just the Nazis. I but
0: think with, with The Man in the High Castle, you know, on, yes. on Amazon as well, which is good yes. and is about oh, Nazis, but great. there you go. <laughs> yeah, it's absolutely. I mean, the story it came from is sort of,
1: I mean, John Smith is not a character in the original story, but anyway. Um <laughs> So Fatherland, that's definitely, because it's the thing is, it's a thriller and it's the alternative history. So the two. Another one I'd really recommend um, is Michael Chabon's *The Yiddish Policeman's Union*, and that's another thriller, but with a different twist. But that's where um, the Jews were given Alaska as a homeland, not Israel. Ah, uh-huh. and the lease sucks. Is, sucks to the be that cold. <laughs> is, yeah, very cold, and the lease is running out. Uh-huh. So that's quite. That's quite, and he writes very, very cleverly. He's a clever writer. Hmm. Then if you want some, a couple more in the UK is Pavan, which is by Keith Roberts. And that's in, as if the, Catholics, the Spanish Catholics had invaded and won in England oh. in, in the Armada. And that, that there they take sort of episodes. Again, he's quite a, a deep writer, a writer on moods. And you're getting glimpses of little episodes in people's lives. But it does all come out to a conclusion. And then the other one is good old Kingsley Amos, which people don't realize he wrote an alternate history. <laughs> and that's called The Alteration, which is a play on words and quite a lot of funny little political ironies in it as well. Ah. But that, that's quite good.
0: Fantastic. Well, I think it's surprising when you start thinking about it. And I, I love the idea. It's something that, you know, I have thought about um, uh, and Yeah, but I I do think it's so interesting and definitely people should check out Romanova if they want to see how your mind has taken history (laughs) and turned it into a story. So where can people find you and your books and everything you do online? Right. Okay. well, I've got two blogs, one's for writing and writers
1: and odd stuff. But my main Romanova blog is at uh, alison-morton.com.
0: Brilliant. Well, thanks. that's yes. to
1: Hang on, that's got a blog blog attached to it, and I'm on Twitter at Alison underscore Morton. So and Facebook, of course, like everybody else's.
0: <laughs> okay, well, thanks so much for your time, Alison. That was great. I've had a great time chatting. I mean, I <laughs>
1: yes, thank you so much.
0: Thanks for joining me today on the Books and Travel podcast. I hope you found a moment of escape. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page and if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my books for free at jfpen.com forward slash free. Happy travels until next time.